Howdy everybody, CJ here, your cowboy in the jungle, rolling with the punches, playing out all my hunches, making the best of whatever comes my way. So this is going to be DHP episode 250, and that was going to be the next Giant Woodrow Wilson episode that's still in the works, but unfortunately I had another batch of bad luck. Boy, has 2022 been a whole series of unfortunate events for me for the most part. So, last Friday was a glorious North Florida winter morning. Now, if you don't know, in Florida, especially in North Florida, winter is like the nice weather time of year. Not to say you can't get bad weather in winter, you definitely can, but the best weather of the year is going to be some of your winter days. And when I hear Yanks say things like, oh, Florida has nice weather, usually what I think they... uh are getting at is either a their entire definition of nice weather just means it never snows and like that's it that's their only they don't care about anything else how hot how humid how many storms whatever it's just not doesn't snow equals good weather and then i think aside from the people who just mean that when they say florida has nice weather that probably the majority of the remainder of people who say that are people who came and visited florida sometime between december and maybe mid-March, and happened to hit it, you know, on a really nice week when the weather is beautiful. So what does it mean, beautiful weather? Well, it means early in the morning when I'm going out there to do my run in Flagler Beach, that it's in the 50s, but sunny blue skies, cool but not too cold, cold enough that I'll start off my run wearing a hoodie sweatshirt, but not so cold that I have to keep it on the whole time. In fact, usually within one to two miles. I have warmed up sufficiently that I have to take the hooded sweatshirt off as I'm running. So anyway, I'm at my favorite running area. This is the same vicinity, by the way, where about nine months ago I got bit by a dog and had to get rabies shots. So maybe not the luckiest place in the world, but it's a beautiful place to run or walk or exercise or whatever, especially when the weather is nice as it was last Friday. So last Friday I get up and by the way, for about a week prior, I had not had a good night's sleep primarily due to stress and some other things going on for about a week. I hadn't gotten a really good night's sleep. And then Thursday night, I had a really good night's sleep for the first time in at least a week, and then I woke up Friday morning, the weather was glorious, the sky was bright blue, it was cool and dry, and I'm well rested for the first time in at least a week, and I go out there to do my run, and it starts off great, I'm feeling good, I'm like, oh man, I'm going to be doing at least six miles today, I feel so good. And so I park my car as I usually do, in a park on the western side of the intercoastal, and then I run out and run over the big bridge, which gives me some nice, you know, incline and decline, which is hard to come by if you're a Florida runner. I run over the big bridge, over the intercoastal, it's beautiful. Ospreys are flying around looking for fish. Dolphins are splashing in the intercoastal below me. It's just glorious. I run over the bridge. I run down the other side. I run down into the park over there, which is where I was bit by a dog nine months ago. And uh, that park on the far side is a really nice place to run in, despite the hazards of idiots with dogs, some of whom don't put their dogs on leashes. So I run down into that park, and that park on the far side of the intercoastal, a lot of it's along the water, beautiful views. And it's a combination of wooden boardwalk and dirt trails through 
mangrove forests and things like that. So I'm running around in there, and instead of running into a problem dog this time, I suddenly trip on a tree root and take a dive. And I'm usually very sure-footed when I'm trail running, and in fact, I run on trails much more rugged than this one that I tripped on. And in all of my years of trail running, ever since I had my gastric bypass surgery in late 2018 and started to lose enough weight that I could actually run decent distances, I've run on some pretty rugged trails and I've never taken a full spill. You know, I've had a few times where I stumble a little bit on something, you know, stub stub a toe on a rock or a root or whatever, but I'm usually very good about paying attention to the trail and I'm usually very good about even if I do stumble a little bit, I'm sure-footed enough I don't go all the way down. But for whatever reason, on this particular morning, it was a full-fledged dive. And I'm sure you've all experienced this in a trip and fall scenario where you feel like it's in slow motion. You feel like you got all this time to think about what's happening, but no matter what you do, you can't really stop it. You feel like you're slow motion going through the inevitable of falling. And so I fell forward into the left, um, sort of like the Zabruder film, only instead of back into the left, it was forward into the left and went all the way down on the dirt trail. And my left knee got very badly scraped up, road rashed on the trail. And of course, since it was a dirt trail, I got all kinds of dirt in the wounds and it's bleeding like crazy. And then what I could tell pretty quickly was hurt even more though, was my left hand, which my left hand, you know, shot up in front of me to break my fall. So I didn't hit my face on the ground. And I could tell right away that was hurt pretty badly. It, you know, was pretty painful. It started to swell up. And, uh, so I did the only thing I could think to do, which was to run back over to my car, which was, you know, over a mile away from where I fell. So I ran all the way back to my car. By the time I got back to my car, I had run about four miles, which, you know, I had planned on doing at least six before I took a dive, but at least it was a decent run anyway. So I get in my car, I drive home, I clean up my scraped up bleeding knee as best I can, clean all the dirt out, disinfect it. But my left hand is getting more swollen, more painful, and I'm trying to figure out, did I break something or did I just, you know, bruise and sprain the hell out of it, whatever. And I called my wife to talk about it with her a bit, let her know what was going on. I also called my mom, who's a retired nurse, to just sort of get her opinion. And, you know, I kept going back and forth in my head between something might be broken or maybe not. And after a couple of hours... It was swelling enough and the pain was increasing enough that I was like, all right, I better go get it looked at and get an x-ray. Now, I'm never going back to the emergency room again unless I'm like literally about to die, like I've been shot multiple times or something like that. After my last experience having to wait there for like eight hours just to get rabies shots, I'm not going to the emergency room unless I'm about to die. But luckily, I know that there is a little urgent care clinic sort of a place in town that usually does a pretty good job and that they do have on-site x-rays there. So that's where I end up going. And long story short, it wasn't too bad of a visit. I was in and out in a little bit under two hours, which is pretty good for most medical visits these days. And long story short, my hand was miraculously, nothing in it was broken. It just was very painful, swelling a lot, you know, I guess bruised and sprained up real bad. So they wrapped me up in an ace bandage 
And we're going to prescribe naproxen, but I can't take NSAIDs because of my gastric bypass situation. So the main thing they would have given me to take the swelling down quickly is something I can't take. So I go home and just, you know, take Tylenol for the pain and try and ice it as much as possible. Now, the downside is, even though nothing's broken, it's very injured, my left hand. And so, among other things, this means... No weightlifting for me for probably at least a week from when the injury happened. We'll see how it goes. And uh, also no yoga during that time because my hand is injured. And also it did a number on my ability to play guitar, which is one of my main things I do for my mental health, aside from exercise and meditation. So all pretty annoying, pretty disgruntling. But I got to tell you, it also put a real delay into my progress on the next Woodrow Wilson episode because I can't type very much until, you know, if I type, if I start typing for more than a couple of minutes, my hand starts to really hurt my left hand. So that really put the brakes on my ability to continue to type up notes as I continue to put together segments for the next Woodrow Wilson episode. So I'm hoping that in a few more days, my hand will be healed up enough that I'll be able to type reasonably well for long stretches of time, and I can get back on working on that Wilson episode. But for now, I decided to do an episode that I've been thinking about for at least a few weeks now that doesn't need huge amounts of notes, and that I already sort of put together the basic bullet points for. And that is, as you may have seen from the title of the episode, 12 writers, every libertarian including me, should read more. So these are 12 authors. Some of them write fiction. Some of them write nonfiction. Some of them write both. Some of them explicitly identify as libertarians and or anarchists, but many, perhaps most on the list, actually do not. But nonetheless, all of them are writers who I think deserve to be more widely known and read amongst the sorts of people who would listen to this show including me. Some of these are going to be writers that I know I have mentioned and referenced a bunch on this podcast, and others are ones I may not have mentioned at all or maybe only briefly mentioned a long time ago. So I'm hoping at least some of the names on this list are names that either you've never heard of or that maybe you've vaguely heard of somewhere but really don't know much about. And so I'm hoping that everybody listening is going to find some interesting stuff to explore. And I will say this, every single writer on here, regardless of whatever their actual ideology or worldview is, they're all very independent-minded. So, you know, no hacks for any particular like party or ideology or whatever like that. All of them are independent thinkers in their own ways. And then the last thing that they all have in common is that they are all very good writers in whatever, you know, genre it is that they write in. So I'm going to go through this list in the order in which the authors lived, starting with the earliest and ending uh, with the most recent. And the last few are people that are still alive, actually. So, the first one I want to mention is Montesquieu, also known by his, you know, full pretentious title, Charles-Louis de Secondat Baron de la Bredle de Montesquieu. I'm sure I'm butchering that pronunciation. But basically, he is a French baron, a nobleman, 
and he's generally just referred to by the name Montesquieu, and he lived from 1689 to 1755. He is very much considered an Enlightenment political philosopher. He's also generally thought of as very much a classical liberal. He was a particularly large influence on the guys that we think of as America's founding fathers. He was one of the most cited and referenced political philosophers when you look at, you know, who the founding fathers were referencing when they debated with each other or wrote letters to each other talking about political science stuff. Montesquieu's best-known kind of big magnum opus on political science stuff is a book that is called Spirit of the Laws. Sometimes it's just called Spirit of Law or Spirit of the Law, something like that. And it was very influential, particularly amongst America's founding fathers, in their ideas about how to structure a constitution, because Montesquieu put a lot of emphasis on the idea of separation of powers as being a very effective strategy to try to limit government and thereby maximize liberty. Spirit of the Laws is one of those books that I've read chunks of it. I can't say I've read the whole thing cover to cover. It's a very big book with a lot of things in it. But Montesquieu, probably his second most well-known book, is a book called Persian Letters that was sort of a satire of, to him, contemporary French society. I myself have not read a word of Persian letters, so can't comment on it, but one other Montesquieu book I'm familiar with that I actually have read cover to cover and that is, you know, nowhere near as long and dense as Spirit of the Laws is a book that is a fairly concise book, but with quite a long title. And the title is Considerations on the Causes of the Greatness of the Romans and Their Decline. And this book is one that I read for the first time earlier this year and was very, very into it. It's a very interesting book with a lot of stuff going on, despite it being fairly short and being, you know, just nominally about the Roman Empire's rise and fall. In fact, this book was the very first book that I assigned in the first DHP book club meeting, which was held back in October. So anyway, Montesquieu, very much worth reading, not exactly a modern libertarian, but sort of proto in a lot of ways, sort of a proto-libertarian classical liberal, one of my favorite thinkers of the Enlightenment for sure. The next author I want to recommend here is another Frenchman, and that is, of course, Alexis de Tocqueville. And that is somebody I know that I have referenced multiple times on the Dangerous History podcast. He was also a French nobleman and political philosopher, who I think is usually considered a classical liberal as well, but he's from a much later time period than Montesquieu. Montesquieu lived from 1689 to 1755, I believe, whereas Tocqueville was born over a century later and lived from 1805 to 1859. Of course, for sure, the best-known book by Tocqueville is especially in America, but I would imagine perhaps even elsewhere, is his book Democracy in America that he wrote after traveling extensively through sort of like Jacksonian-era America. And this is a huge book. It actually originally was put out, um, I think, in at least two volumes. So it's an even bigger book 
than Montesquieu's Spirit of the Laws. And like with Spirit of the Laws, it is a book that I have read significant chunks of, but that I can't say that I've actually read, you know, cover to cover every word in it. But it's very much worth reading. And it's one of those books I keep meaning to actually go back as with Spirit of the Laws and just read the whole thing cover to cover. But of course, time is always a scarce resource. But Democracy in America is a fascinating book. It really is. It's amazing how many things he accurately predicts, both good and bad, for the United States, based on his take of what was going on in either the 1820s or the 1830s that he did his extensive travels throughout the U.S. And it's always very interesting to get an outsider's take. Because very often, an outsider, you know, traveling around through a society is going to notice a whole lot more things than the people that just live there and take it all for granted, that, you know, how their culture is and how their political system works and all that. Whereas an outsider coming in with fresh eyes is going to notice everything that is new or different or idiosyncratic. But as with Montesquieu, there is another book by Tocqueville that is one of his um, kind of next most well-known books that I actually have read cover to cover. In fact, I think I've read it at least twice. And that is his book, The Old Regime and the French Revolution, which was published, I believe, in the 1850s. So, you know, well after the French Revolution. It's about the original French Revolution. Of course, France had additional revolutions over the course of the 19th century. And Tocqueville has a very interesting take on the French Revolution and how it should be seen historically. And he sort of argues that really the French Revolution is more about continuity than about change in a lot of surprising ways. And overall, he's got a critical take on the original French Revolution, although it's a very sophisticated and nuanced take, if I remember right. So yeah, Democracy in America, very much worth reading. The Old Regime and the French Revolution, very much worth reading. Um, what else might be out there by Tocqueville that's worth reading? I am not sure as of this recording. The next writer I'm going to recommend is a Spanish philosopher named Jose Ortega y Gasset. And he lived from 1883 until 1955. Ortega's best-known book is, in English, The Revolt of the Masses, which I believe was first published as a series of essays in newspapers in the late 1920s, and then was published for the first time as a book in 1930, and then I think was translated into English within a few years. And The Revolt of the Masses is a very, very critical take of the rise of kind of mass society and mass men or mass people. This is a book I've actually read through at least a couple of times, and it is a very interesting book, very thought-provoking, and it's been long enough since the last time that I read it that I don't remember a ton of detail about it, but I think, if I remember right, that Ortega is in some ways defending more kind of aristocratic society because its elitism tends to produce better people and better politics than a society in which everything is geared towards the masses. So it would be interesting to read that book uh, side by side with Notes on Democracy by H.L. Mencken, which is roughly contemporary in terms of when it was written. But of course, one written by a Spanish guy, another written by an American. 
By the way, H.L. Mencken is not on this list. He probably could easily have made it. I kind of felt like he already is pretty well known amongst libertarian-type people. But for sure, if you're not familiar with H.L. Mencken, go read yourself some H.L. Mencken. Maybe a little bit of like an honorable mention. Ortega y Gasset also has one other book that I personally have read, and that is his book Meditations on Hunting, which I'm not sure when that was first written and published. I think it wasn't translated into English until after Ortega's death. And Meditations on Hunting is one that I probably ought to reread one of these days because I don't remember too much about it, other than I liked it, and it was a very introspective and philosophical take on hunting and what hunting means to human beings. The next writer that I want to mention is John Dos Passos. And he was an American writer who lived from 1896 to 1970. So he is a member of the so-called lost generation, the generation that came of age during World War I. And if memory serves, I think he had a Portuguese father, hence his somewhat unusual last name for an American of that time period. And he was a well-educated guy. I believe he went to Harvard, if I remember right. And he served as an ambulance driver and medical corpsman during World War I. And from what I understand, and I don't know a ton about him other than, you know, what you can find on places like Wikipedia, but from what I understand, over the course of his life, he underwent multiple kind of ideological and political uh, transformations. And started off very hard left, and then eventually, after a few kind of changes of mind, ended up, I believe, towards the latter years of his life as like a right-wing, kind of Goldwater-esque Republican. But as far as I know, he always, after his service in World War I, remained very skeptical of war. And anyway, he became a successful writer, primarily known as a novelist, although he did write some nonfiction as well. And I first bumped into him, so to speak, when I was still working at St. John's River State College, and I went into several years back now, probably at least three, four years back, I went into the library, which we had a surprisingly good library for such a humble school. And I was digging through the stacks, pulling up books related to Woodrow Wilson and his era and his presidency to begin researching for the Woodrow Wilson series, which now, all these years later, is still in progress. And I had learned from my time, really since I was a kid, and I loved to spend hours prowling the stacks of the public library, and this continued when I went to college and then graduate school. I very much am a fan of the serendipity of the stacks, by which I mean when you look up a book on a topic and, you know, back when I was a little kid with the card catalog, but then before long it became computerized, and you go find the book that you're initially looking for on a particular topic, but you also look around it for other books that might be related to what you're looking at. And no matter what you do to try and improve, you know, search functions on computers or whatever, to me, there's still just no substitute for the serendipity of physically walking along the bookshelves and just kind of keeping an eye out for anything else that might be related to the topic you're looking into that you didn't know you didn't know about, right? The old unknown, unknown thing, as Donald Rumsfeld taught us. 
And so I had several books related to Woodrow Wilson that I had looked up that, you know, I was going right for their, whatever they call it now that's replaced the Dewey Decimal System, I forget. But anyway, one of the books that just randomly caught my eye that I eventually ended up checking out and that uh, when I left the college, I bought a copy of for myself so I would have it is a book called Mr. Wilson's War by John Dos Passos. And this is a nonfiction book. It's kind of a literary narrative history take, not like a scholarly academic, you know, footnoted sort of a book. More of a popular literary type of history book. Not just about Woodrow Wilson in World War I, but going way back to, like, first the William Jennings Bryan era of the Democratic Party, and then how Woodrow Wilson kind of supplanted that and progressivism took the party over from populism, and sort of the the rise of Woodrow Wilson to president, his political battles with Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft, and then goes all the way up, you know, into America's entry into World War I and through it. And honestly, as of this recording, I have not read the book all the way through, because of course I'm reading like 15 books on Wilson uh, in parallel as I work on the series, but I get the impression from what I have read so far, and also from what I know of Dos Passos, that he is overall pretty critical of Woodrow Wilson. Now, I don't agree with everything that he has to say about Wilson in this book so far. I think he's positive. Dos Passos, I mean, is positive on at least some of the things Wilson did, including, if memory serves, I think he was kind of complimentary about the Federal Reserve. But, you know, he's a literary guy, he's not an economist or whatever, so I'm willing to cut him some slack. But it seems like he's probably going to be pretty negative on Wilson uh, getting America into World War I, especially considering that Dos Passos was a World War I veteran. And from what I understand, he got pretty disillusioned by that experience in a lot of ways. So, that's been an interesting book to read in parallel with more recent, more academic, scholarly-type books about Woodrow Wilson. But like I said, Dos Passos is primarily known as a fiction writer, as a novelist, and he's got multiple books that are historical fiction novels of American history and what would have been to him relatively recent American history. You know, early to mid-20th century. And there's another book, the second book by Dos Passos that I personally own as of this recording, but which I haven't started reading as of this recording, is a book called The Grand Design. And from what I understand, that book is about the FDR presidency. Now, again, this is a historical novel. This is not a nonfiction work. But my understanding is that it's a very critical take on FDR's presidency and the New Deal and getting America into World War II and all that. Again, I haven't read it yet, so I can't say for sure, but that's my impression. And I first came across this book referenced somewhere, and I don't remember where, but somewhere, something else I was reading quoted the line, War is a time of Caesars and attributed that to John Dos Passos. And so I eventually looked up, where did that quote come from? And it came from this book, The Grand Design. So seems to me that wherever he was on his personal intellectual journey at the time, even if he was still somewhat of a leftist, he at the very least was one of the better leftists, you know, skeptical of FDR, uh, that kind of thing. But anyway, John Dos Passos. The next writer I want to mention is a Frenchman named Jacques Ellul. And now we're getting into people born in the 20th century. 
Dos Passos, of course, was born shortly before it, and Jacques Ellul was born in 1912 and died in 1994. And he was an academic, but kind of a very, um, a very varied academic in terms of his areas of knowledge and specialty. The Wikipedia entry for him says he was a French philosopher, sociologist, lay theologian, and professor who was a noted Christian anarchist. And it says, Ilul was a longtime professor of history and sociology. Oh, sorry. And the sociology of institutions on the Faculty of Law and Economic Sciences at the University of Bordeaux. A prolific writer, he authored more than 60 books and more than 600 articles over his lifetime, many of which discussed propaganda, the impact of technology on society, and the interaction between religion and politics. So that's just from the first paragraph of Wikipedia. It's hard to summarize him in a lot of ways, which is why I bit the bullet and just read you the first paragraph of Wikipedia on him. But he was a Christian anarchist, which I've always found a very fascinating belief system. Not what I would personally describe myself as, but one uh, that I have a lot of sympathy for and a lot of respect for. And I first became aware of Elul when I was in graduate school, and I took a research seminar course, the theme of which was modern propaganda. And it was one of the best courses I took in graduate school, and my project in that course resulted in my paper about British imperial propaganda in between World War I and World War II, centered on the so-called British Empire exhibitions. And I actually made that paper into a DHP episode a while ago, for anyone who's actually interested in that. But as part of that course, in addition to, you know, each student pursuing their own individual original research project related to propaganda, we also had books that were assigned in common for everybody to read that covered modern propaganda in different ways. And we did have some uh, discussion, uh, discussion sessions on those books. And the first one we read that was assigned to all of us was the book Propaganda, The Formation of Men's Attitudes by Jacques Ellul. And this is one of the books that ever since I read it has been on my short list of the most important books to read to understand and think deeply about modern propaganda. And really that course overall was the beginning of my serious interest in study in propaganda. So, you know, almost 20 years ago, uh, as I'm recording this episode. Probably his second best-known book, other than propaganda, is a book called The Technological Society, which I have not read, but which I've been meaning to read, you know, for like 15, 20 years at this point. But I can say that about a lot of books, to be honest with you. And my understanding is it's a book that is very critical about the effects of technology on human beings. So maybe it's Ted Kaczynski, you know, minus the mailing people letter bombs or whatever. I don't know because I haven't read it yet, but that's the impression I get. Propaganda is the only full book-length piece by Ilul that I've read, and I've actually read it multiple times. As of this recording, I haven't read any other actual books from him, but I have read a number of his, you know, shorter pieces, his articles, essays, whatever you want to call them, uh, including multiple ones having to do with Christian anarchism. And I always find Jacques Ellul very interesting and thought-provoking to read. 
So for sure, if you're any sort of a libertarian anarchist or whatever, and you're a Christian, you'll find a lot of what he had to say on that stuff very interesting. And I think anybody will benefit from reading what Ilul has to say on the subject of propaganda. The next writer I want to mention is Jane Jacobs. And Jane Jacobs was born in 1916 and died in 2006, so she had a good long run. And she was born in the U.S., but I believe she actually lived a lot of her adult life and ultimately died in Canada. And she was not a formal, you know, credentialed academic like Jacques Ellul was. She instead was somewhat of an autodidact. Her Wikipedia first paragraph describes her as a journalist, author, theorist, and activist who influenced urban studies, sociology, and economics. And for sure, her best-known book is The Death and Life of Great American Cities, which was first published in 1961. And that's a book I read a long time ago and have been meaning to reread for years, but of course, you know, never time enough to read. Those of you who are fans of the original Twilight Zone, you get that joke. Time enough to read. But long story short, she was extremely critical of modern urban planning and urban development, and basically argued that kind of mid to late 20th century urban planning was all wrong for actual human beings to thrive and have vibrant, viable communities. And so as such, she was very much an opponent of imposed order and very much a proponent of emergent order. And in that way, I think she was a big influence on my take on those, you know, opposite poles of imposed versus emergent order and probably influenced my thinking. Some of you may remember the episode I did, I don't know, a year ago or so on emergent versus imposed order. So that's a book very much worth reading. It also, by the way, dovetails a bit with some of the work done by another author I'll mention later, James C. Scott. The other book of hers that I've actually read is a book she published toward the end of her life, I believe, called Dark Age Ahead. And this is a really interesting book because it's her take on various institutions and things that are becoming very dysfunctional and corrupt in America. And she makes a case that if a lot of these trends continue, then we're very soon going to enter into a dark age. And I would actually agree with that. And I would probably argue we're already to some degree, at least in it. And she's got a very thought provoking take. I don't agree with her on everything, but I agree with her on a lot in that book. And this is another book, like many that I'm mentioning in this episode, that I'll probably eventually have the DHP Book Club discuss, because I think it's that interesting and important. The next author I want to mention is Gore Vidal. Gore Vidal lived from 1925 to 2012, and so now we're up to the so-called Greatest Generation, which I don't like that term. If anything, I'll say the GI generation usually, but basically the generation that was of age to be, you know, rank and file soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, whatever in World War II. Very interesting guy. Very hard to characterize where he was 
politically, intellectually, and that's probably how he would have liked it. I think ultimately it would be best to describe him as one of the good leftists, by which I mean leftists who are critical of most of the dominant strain of progressivism in America and, you know, who are critical of like FDR and the New Deal and critical of a lot of American militarism and ultimately the surveillance state and all these sorts of things. And he's primarily known as a novelist. He also wrote some nonfiction. I'm not sure if he published any book-length nonfiction, but for sure he wrote a lot of nonfiction, you know, essays and articles and things. Today, he's probably best known for the infamous dust-up with William F. Buckley Jr. back in, I think it was 1968 where on live TV they were debating each other while the Republican and Democratic conventions were going on, you know, to nominate for president. And he deliberately baited William F. Buckley into losing his famous cool. And basically, he kind of accused Buckley of being a crypto-fascist or crypto-Nazi or something like this. And Buckley lost his cool and called him, I think, a goddamn queer and threatened to sock him in the mouth or something like that. And ultimately, he ended up looking like the asshole on national TV back when national TV was a big deal. And this is all covered in the very interesting and entertaining documentary, I think it's called Best of Enemies. It's just all about this whole episode. But in my opinion, he was generally on the right side of most issues. Vidal, I mean, not Buckley. You know, I think he opposed American involvement in the Vietnam War. And later in his life, he opposed uh, the Clinton administration, actually very strongly. And he also very strongly opposed George W. Bush's wars and surveillance state and all that in the aftermath of 9-11. So, you know, one of the good leftists, in my opinion. And as of this recording, I've never actually read a full book-length piece by Gore Vidal. I've been meaning to for a long time. He's got a series of historical novels about American history that I've been meaning to read for a long time. These novels are collectively known as narratives of empire. So right off the bat, you know, this is a guy who characterizes the United States as an empire. So already, you know, I'm all ears. And he's got one called Burr, which is about, you know, the earliest years of the American Republic. And then he's got another one called Lincoln, which is self-explanatory, you know, when and where it's set. He's got another one called 1876. Next one in the series is called Empire. And that, I believe, is about sort of the William McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, large policy era. Another one called Hollywood that is about, my understanding is, the early 20th century to mid-20th century and focuses on the rise of the film industry, but also deals with the politics of the era. And then another one called Washington, D.C., which is about kind of like FDR through the middle of Dwight Eisenhower. So from the run-up to World War II into the early stages of the Cold War. And then another one called The Golden Age, which deals with some similar stuff, but I'm sure in a different way, in terms of mid-20th century. And these novels, from what I understand, are very, very critical of the American establishment, and of wars, and foreign policy, and imperialism, and all this sort of stuff. So, this series of novels has been on my list to eventually read for years. And it's just another one of those, you know, time enough to read conundrums. 
So those are the books that I personally am the most interested to read by Gore Vidal. I've read a bunch of his essays and articles over the years, and the one I always remember the most is an article I'll try to remember to link to in the show notes, titled The Meaning of Timothy McVeigh, which was published in Vanity Fair in 2001. And he's very, very critical of the Clinton and Bush era growth of overbearing federal authority. You know, he very much was a civil libertarian, if nothing else, and was very uncomfortable with the heavy-handed federal authority exercised by Clinton and Bush. The next author I want to mention is Edward Abbey. Now, he was the same generation as Gore Vidal, but he didn't live nearly as long. He lived from 1927 to 1989. And his Wikipedia first paragraph says he was an American author, essayist, and environmental activist, noted for his advocacy of environmental issues and criticism of public land policies. But he certainly, this is me speaking now, I'm no longer quoting from the Wikipedia paragraph, he certainly was not a typical environmentalist, let's just say that, and he was very much an anarchist. And he's some sort of, you know, unhyphenated anarchist, like, he's certainly not an anarcho-capitalist, but I don't think at all that he's an anarcho-communist either, he's sort of his own thing. And his style of environmentalism, from at least what I understand of it and what I've read of him, is actually closer to mine. You know, very much not the uh, Davos-approved school of environmentalists. And he wrote a bunch of novels, and um, as of this recording, I've only read one. I've read his novel, Good News which is a very interesting sort of near-future dystopia kind of a thing about the American West in the aftermath of kind of the collapse of the economy and the government and a bad guy trying to set up some sort of dictatorship in the aftermath of that collapse. And it's been a long time since I read that novel. I liked it. It's another, you know, mean to reread it eventually. Maybe I'll make it a DHP book club assignment as well. So I don't remember too many details of it other than it was very interesting and I enjoyed it. I've read a number of interesting articles and essays by him, but the only other book-length piece I've read by him is called Desert Solitaire, A Season in the Wilderness, and it's basically about Abby's time as a park ranger out in Arches National Monument, as it was called back then. So yeah, this anarchist spent some time as a park ranger in the far west and had some very interesting experiences. We'll just put it like that. So if you're somebody who's into outdoor writing, it's worth checking out. Again, been many years since I read it, so I don't remember a huge amount of detail other than, you know, I liked it. And um, other than that, I've read a biography of Edward Abbey. I'm blanking on the title right now. And he wrote something I still haven't read but mean to that I think was a master's thesis called Anarchism and the Morality of Violence. So sounds very intriguing. But as of this recording, it's just another thing I haven't gotten around to reading yet. But among his novels, other than Good News, which I already mentioned, are things like Fire on the Mountain, which you may have heard of, The Monkey Wrench Gang, which might be his most famous novel. And I think it's about some sort of environmentalist terrorist or something like that. But I haven't read it. 
as of this recording, so I don't know a huge amount of detail about that either. And then also worth mentioning is his novel, The Brave Cowboy, which I also haven't read. And I know about this one because it was adapted into a movie, a Hollywood movie, which you're much more likely to recognize the title of, and that is when it was turned into a movie, it was called Lonely Are the Brave, and it starred Kirk Douglas, and I haven't read the book, but I have seen the movie, and I would recommend it, Lonely Are the Brave, which I believe was not just based on Abby's novel. I think he actually also served as the screenwriter to adapt it. And in closing him out, I'll just say that You know, I have no idea when I would get around to this. I'd have to do a ton more reading of his works and about his life. Like I said, I've read one biography of him. But I would consider possibly in the future making a DHP Heroes episode about Edward Abbey, because I think he's very much underappreciated today amongst sort of libertarians and anarchists and so forth. The next author I want to mention is going to be no surprise to longtime listeners of this show, and that is Mike Resnick, who lived from 1942 to 2020. Yes, he was one of the many tragic casualties of 2020. I believe he died in January, and, you know, it had nothing to do with COVID, so nothing like that. And I actually didn't find out he had died until months after it had happened. But Mike Resnick was an extremely prolific science fiction writer maybe even almost as prolific as L. Ron Hubbard, only unlike L. Ron Hubbard, his writings were actually really good, and unlike L. Ron Hubbard, of course, he didn't found a super shady cult. But Mike Resnick is very much my favorite kind of sci-fi author, in that most of what he wrote could be considered very much in kind of the pulp tradition of relatively lean storytelling, a lot of action, a lot of cool, interesting characters. A lot of what he wrote would be considered space westerns. But he was not exclusive to that. He wrote other kinds of sci-fi as well. But if you like that kind of old-school, pulpy, often action-packed, space western, space opera-type stuff, I would say you got to check out Mike Resnick if you have not already. One of his best-known books, and the one through which I discovered him, is uh, what I would now consider possibly my favorite sci-fi book and one of my favorite fiction books of all time, which is Santiago, uh, Myth of the Far Future. And somehow or other, I was probably poking around somewhere looking at space western type stuff, and I bumped into this book, and I checked it out, and I was immediately just pulled into the book. And that book, and many, though not all, of Resnick's stories have very strong libertarian tendencies. Not in um, an awkward kind of Hollywoke way, the way they, you know, ham-fistedly shove their ideology into everything, even where it doesn't make sense. Um, In the case of Mike Resnick, I would say his worldview kind of works its way in much more organically to the story, and it's not, uh, at least to me anyway, and maybe I'm biased, but it comes off to me as not being as, you know, didactic and awkward as the way it is sometimes when people put their political views and ideological views into their storytelling. I get the impression that for Resnick, the story and the characters and all that good stuff always came first. And yeah, some of his views worked their way into the story as well, but, you know, that's not what he started with. And then from there, I read a bunch of other stuff by him over the years. Again, most of it, Space Westerns, but not all of it. And I've always enjoyed everything I've read by him, 
including a number of short stories. And the guy was just so prolific. I, I don't know how the hell he wrote as many novels as he did, let alone a ton of short stories as well on top of that. But in addition to Santiago, uh, he wrote a book called Birthright, which is interesting. He wrote a series of pretty short novels called the Galactic Midway series, and I've read one or two of those. He wrote a very interesting book called The Outpost that I'm also a big fan of, and a whole mini-series of novels about a character called The Widowmaker, again, very much a space-western sort of a story. And the first Widowmaker novel is great. There's some sequels that are still pretty good. I don't like them quite as much as the original, but hey, that almost always happens. But a lot of space westerns, a lot of weird westerns, but other interesting stuff, too. He had a lot of similar interests to me personally. Uh, Resnick was very much interested in, like, old African safari lore, that type of stuff. And he often incorporated that into his sci-fi in various ways, which, again, I'm just a big fan of that stuff. You know, reading, like, Robert Rourke writing about um, old-school safaris in Africa, that kind of stuff. And I'll close out talking about Mike Resnick by just saying that he is the only author on this list that I have personally spoken to. Now, I never met him in person, unfortunately. I wish I had. But years ago, many podcast episodes ago, I did a DHP episode with my buddy Josh Perry, who at the time was doing the Dusty Den podcast. And we did an episode that we both put out as episodes of our respective podcasts. So it was a, a true crossover in which we discussed my favorite novel by Resnick, which again is Santiago. And which Josh had not read at the time. So he was reading it for the first time. I was reading it for the second or third time, probably. And so, yeah, we had a long discussion about the book. And then not long after we published that episode, I got contacted by a listener who said, hey, I'm friends with Mike Resnick. Would you like me to put you two in touch and maybe he can come on the show? And I was like, holy cow, yeah, you know. I couldn't say yes fast enough. And so we did a joint interview with me and Josh both kind of like tag teaming the interview with him. And Resnick was just a super nice guy, just very, very down to earth for such an accomplished, prolific, award-winning sci-fi author. And so it was just, you know, one of the high points. I've had a lot of high points in the DHP, but one of the high points, especially early on, was getting to interview Mike Resnick. And especially, you know, when he died a couple of years ago, I, I was like, man, that, that's, you know, that really sucks. Um, but I was so grateful that I had the opportunity to talk to him while he was still around. And then a few more things about him, because he's just, you know, he really impressed me as a good dude. Somehow or other in our conversation, and I don't even remember if it was, you know, on mic or not, I had just mentioned in passing that I wrote a little bit of fiction, including sci-fi. And I wasn't trying to like, you know, be pushy about it and be like, oh, look at my stuff, or can you give me a recommendation or whatever. I just sort of mentioned it in passing. And after we were done with the interview, Mike Resnick volunteered. He said, hey, if you want to send me something to look at just to give you some feedback, feel free. I was like, geez, holy shit, you know. 
So I sent him a story that I had published a few years previously that was sort of like a space opera, space western type of a story. And he got back to me with feedback, and it was mostly positive, although he did have a few criticisms, to be sure. And some of which I agreed with, some of which I kind of disagreed with, but hey, that's how it goes. But, you know, for a guy that obviously must have spent like nine hours a day writing to crank out as much stuff as he did for him to be kind enough to volunteer to take a look at one of my stories and give me feedback and take the time to do that. I was just very, very impressed by that. But it didn't just stop there as far as him making a personal impression on me. Also, after our interview, I sent him a short email. Um, I, this was probably the email where I attached my story for him to look at. And the email, I was mostly just like, hey, seriously, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. You know, we're a couple of small time podcasters and um, we really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. And when he responded again, I didn't ask for this. He volunteered. He said, oh, sure. My pleasure, whatever. And he said, by the way, if there are any books of mine that you don't have that you would like to read, just send me a list and I'll send you, you know, for free, whatever books you want on Kindle. And so, again, I was very impressed with uh, his kindness, and I was in a bit of a conundrum because, like I said, he's written a zillion books, and I'm interested in reading most or all of them, ultimately. And so I was like, man, you know, what's a reasonable list I could send him that, you know, is not me really being a jerk, but still gets me some good stuff to read? So I kind of went looking through his uh, back catalog and came up with a modest list. I forget how many I had on there, maybe like eight, 10 books. I was like, eh, maybe this is pushing it. I don't know. And so I sent him the list like, hey, here, here are some ones I haven't read yet that I don't own yet, um, if you'd be so kind. And he quickly responded and not only sent me Kindle versions of every single book I had listed, but like another couple dozen or something, I forget even how many. He sent me a whole bunch more. He's like, oh yeah, sure, here's all the books you asked for. And oh, here's um, like two times as many <laughs> additional books that um, I think you might like. And so again, just blew me away uh, what a nice guy he was. So um, he'll, he'll be sorely missed, certainly by me and by many sci-fi fans. But if you like old school, kind of like pulpy sci-fi stuff, again, a lot of it, though not exclusively in the sort of space western, space opera type of subgenre, it's really hard to beat Mike Resnick. And he wrote a lot of good short stories, too, by the way. So we're to the last three authors on my list for this episode, and these last three are authors who are still alive. So I'm going to go through them in the order of the year that they were born, which is honestly what I've been doing this entire time. So the next one is another academic, but again, another very unorthodox, very interesting academic, um, you know, in, in some ways similar to Jacques Ellul, just in that he is interested in and writes on many different things, including things that are a little bit outside of his official, you know, credentialed field. And that is James C. Scott, who was born in 1936, and his Wikipedia entry begins, James C. Scott is an American political scientist and anthropologist specializing in comparative politics. He is a comparative scholar of agrarian and non-state societies, subaltern politics, and anarchism. His primary research has centered on peasants in Southeast Asia and their strategies of resistance to various forms of domination. 
The New York Times described his research as highly influential and idiosyncratic. Scott received his bachelor's degree from Williams College and his MA and PhD in political science from Yale. He taught at the University of Wisconsin-Madison until 1976, and then at Yale, where he is Sterling Professor of Political Science. So anyway, I'm going to end quoting from the Wikipedia entry for him, but yeah, he kind of like blurs together political science, anthropology, history, things like that. And he is very unusual in that he is actually pretty sympathetic to anarchism, broadly defined. Now, he doesn't describe himself as an anarchist, I don't think. I think he generally describes himself as something like sympathetic to anarchism. And his objection is he believes that anarchism is ultimately not possible um, now that the modern state is, you know, fully instantiated around the world. So he doesn't object to anarchism like on on any moral ground. He objects to it just because he's skeptical of it being implementable. If memory serves, I think I even read something by him called Two Cheers for Anarchism, where he makes that case that, you know, anarchism is ultimately morally defensible and for non-elite people might even be preferable to what we have. But his view is kind of the pragmatic, well, we can't get rid of the state realistically, so how do we try to maybe prevent it from being as abusive as it would be? Something like that. But as far as I know, his best-known book and the book through which I first discovered him is a book that does have a cult following among some libertarians and I think deserves to be more widely read, and that's a book called The Art of Not Being Governed. And The Art of Not Being Governed is about how the peoples of the upland areas of Southeast Asia, for all of history until very recently, successfully resisted being incorporated into any real kind of state. And this is a fascinating book with a lot of implications for things far beyond just, you know, Southeast Asia pre-modern history. I think there are lots of lessons in the art of not being governed that could be adapted and modified and so forth to help, you know, 21st century people try to reduce at least the degree to which they are predated upon by states. But basically, he argues that, you know, these people in the highlands, they have historically been described as kind of, you know, barbarous primitives or whatever. And like, oh, aren't they unlucky? They've been left outside of the progress of history. And Scott's argument is that's not the right way to look at these people and who they are and why they live the way they live. His argument is, no, these are people deliberately um, living in such a way as to avoid being ruled by states. And that what at first glance from a status perspective looks like, oh, these are primitive backwards ways of doing things that these people have in reality are very intelligent and clever ways to free themselves from state domination. And so that's a very interesting book. Other books by Scott that I've read and can recommend would be Weapons of the Weak, which is about how people low on the social pyramid have nonetheless figured out ways to resist and defend themselves. The subtitle of the book, by the way, is Everyday Forms of Peasant Resistance. And another book that deals with similar things that I've read by him is Domination and the Arts of Resistance. And another book by him that I've read and can recommend is called Seeing Like a State. And Seeing Like a State 
Um, the subtitle of the book is how certain schemes to improve the human condition have failed. And he makes the argument in there. Um, he makes an argument that's very analogous to Jane Jacobs in something like the death and life of great American cities, where he says, look, there's like the top down state way of imposing order on people. And even on forests, by the way, he's got a whole thing about forests and how when states try to manage forests in a systematic, you know, rational sort of a way, it actually is very bad. And it tends to result in much less healthy forests than if you just let nature operate in its own anarchic, emergent order, self-correcting sort of a way. And this is a book that probably influenced my take on the Florida Everglades. And if you remember my podcast coverage of that years ago, my argument was that the government, by going into the Everglades and saying, no, 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 we've got this messy, chaotic swamp and we're going to drain it and we're going to make rational, you know, dams and canals and whatever, that this actually destroyed the environment in a way, whereas when it was just left to its own devices and was sort of self-correcting, you know, emergent order, it was a much more healthy ecosystem. But anyway, seeing like a state is another one that influenced my take on the difference between emergent order and imposed order. And then one more I'll mention by him that is, I believe his most recent book that I've also read and very much recommend is a book called Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States. And this is a more in-depth exploration of something he does cover a bit in The Art of Not Being Governed, which is the links between grain monocrop agriculture and the emergence of states historically. He says that like states really need something like monocrop grain agriculture in order to really emerge and control their territory. And so against the grain is about that and about the ways that people resisted being incorporated into states by practicing different methods of food production and acquisition. And this was one of several books that very much influenced my episode made years back called Grain in the State. So yeah, I haven't read every single thing by Scott, but I think at least when it comes to his books, I've read the majority of what he's written. And I could recommend every single book I've read by him. They're all very, very interesting and thought-provoking. And it is really impressive to see what a genuinely brilliant, highly credentialed academic, right? A guy who's been teaching at Yale for decades can produce when he's not part of the same, you know, typical statist progressive worldview that all, you know, sees the New Deal as progress and, you know, justifies everything that exists. That no, when you have a brilliant academic in a high position who somehow is still able to look at things differently and question all of the received narratives, it produces works of absolute brilliance. By the way, James C. Scott's The Art of Not Being Governed is the next book that we're going to cover in the DHP Book Club, which is actually going to be tomorrow, um, as of when I'm recording this. But I'm sure if I keep the DHP book club going long enough, we'll probably cover multiple other books by James C. Scott. And this is another guy that I think just deserves much more of a following amongst thinking libertarians, broadly defined, than he currently has. The next author I want to mention is Kirkpatrick Sale. 
And he kind of came out of the original New Left in like the 1960s, but he's very much one of the handful of intellectuals I would consider like the best of the New Left. You know, he's not just some like wild communist or something like this, or some sort of apologist for Ho Chi Minh. And the opening of his Wikipedia entry says that uh, he is an American author who has written prolifically about political decentralism, environmentalism, Luddism, and technology. He has been described as having a philosophy unified by decentralism, and as being a leader of the neo-Luddites, an anti-globalization leftist, and the theoretician for a new secessionist movement, end quote. So, yeah, that's what to me makes him so interesting, is that he is a hardcore decentralist. So, you know, he was involved with a lot of the New Left stuff in the 60s and maybe into the 70s, I'm not sure. Um, he was involved with SDS and things like that. And I can sympathize with some of those groups, particularly when they're, you know, being activists against the Vietnam War and stuff like that. But he was never 100% in lockstep with the New Left, and he certainly didn't go along when most of the New Left, you know, joined the establishment and became essentially like the DNC. He certainly was not on board with that, and he was not on board with the centralizing tendencies of the overall American left in the 20th and early 21st centuries. Now, as of this recording, I've read two books by him, and the first one I read by him is called Human Scale, and it is very much a book about decentralization and smaller is better when it comes to communities and institutions and all that sort of stuff. And it is a very interesting book. It was first published in the 1970s and it's very much worth tracking down. It's another book that I've been meaning to reread for a long time. And it's another book that I'll probably eventually assign as a DHP book club book. So if nothing else, that'll give me the uh, oomph to eventually reread it, you know, for that purpose. And then the other book by him that I've read is called Power Shift, The Rise of the Southern Rim and Its Challenge to the Eastern Establishment. And uh, this also, I believe, was published in the 70s. And it's about the rise of the so-called Sunbelt, politically and economically, since World War II. And it's a great companion to a shorter book that's a little bit more conspiratorial that deals with this by another great writer who came out of the New Left, but who wasn't really ever fully in lockstep with the New Left. And that is the book, The Yankee and Cowboy War by Carl Oglesby. So sort of an honorable mention for that here. And those two books, I think, are really interesting to read, you know, side by side, because they both deal with this issue of looking at the U.S. in the mid to late 20th century, not through the lens of Republican versus Democrat or even conservative versus liberal, but instead looking at it through the lens of cowboys versus Yankees, or in other words, Sunbelt Southern Rim versus Eastern Establishment. And so it's a very interesting, different take on power elite politics and how that relates to like broader social trends and social history. That's all I've read by Kirkpatrick Sale as of this recording. I've seen that he put out um, just a few years ago a sequel to Human Scale called Human Scale Revisited, and I just haven't had a chance to read it yet. I certainly am interested to do so. And maybe I'll assign that as a DHP book club book after we cover the original human scale. And other than that, again, he's a hardcore 
supporter of decentralization and secession and smaller communities and so forth. And um, I believe he's been involved with uh, at least some aspects of the Vermont secessionist movement. And also, I believe he's been involved with the uh, Abbeville Institute. So anyway, very interesting guy, very much worth reading. And then the last author I want to mention is an author, uh, one of whose books we actually covered in our last DHP book club Zoom meeting which is the science fiction and horror author F. Paul Wilson, who was born in 1946. And again, from the first paragraph of his Wikipedia entry, quote, F. Paul Wilson, Francis Paul Wilson, is an American medical doctor and author of horror, adventure, medical thrillers, science fiction, and other genres of literary fiction. His books include the Repairman Jack novels, The Adversary Cycle, and a young adult series featuring the teenage Jack, by which he means his character repairman Jack, more on him in a moment. Wilson has won the Prometheus Award, the Bram Stoker Award, the Inkpot Award from the San Diego Comic Con, and the Lifetime Achievement Award of the Horror Writers of America, among other honors. End quote. So yeah, very interesting guy. I'm not sure if he still is, but I know for a long time, even after he became a successful author, he was still practicing as a medical doctor. I think he was like a general practitioner. And again, for all I know, maybe he still is, but, you know, he's in his 70s now, so maybe he's retired from that. But he's actually, I think, one of the few on this list of authors who is a self-identified libertarian. But that wasn't the context in which I discovered him. I actually discovered him because when I was growing up, my father and stepmother had some copies of his novels laying around. And the ones they had laying around were some of his horror novels. And I was a big horror fan, so I started reading those books and I got very interested in them. In fact, the first book by him that I read was The Keep, which coincidentally was first published the year I was born, 1981. I had no idea until looking up stuff for this episode. But The Keep is the first in what's called The Adversary Cycle, which is a long kind of horror series that deals with like a malevolent dark force trying to destroy the world or something like that. And uh, they're very good. They're very, um, you know, fast paced, action packed. And I think I've read all of the books in that series. I think there's like seven or eight of them published in the eighties and nineties. And then the other thing he's probably most known for are his Repairman Jack novels. And um, Repairman Jack is a very interesting character who is perhaps best described as an off-the-grid agorist vigilante for hire. And without delving into it too much, it's a character who is like a guy with no official identity who's sort of like outside the system and who, for a living, helps people solve their problems. And he, he's not like a hitman where you can just, you know, hire him to whack somebody for you. But basically the idea is like, let's say you're a decent person who is being, you know, screwed over or harmed by somebody. And for whatever reason, you can't deal with it through the usual, you know, legal system and all that. Well, you can hire repairman Jack and, you know, he has to agree like he won't work for bad people or whatever. But if you seem to, you know, fit his code of ethics and all that, you can hire him to help you solve some problem that the regular system can't solve for you. And I haven't read all of those, but I've read a bunch of them, and they're very good. And again, fast-paced, action-packed for the most part, good stuff. 
And I've read a few other things by him over the years, including some uh, short stories. I have a collection of his short stories, actually, that's very good. Um, but the other favorite thing of mine by him is one of his earlier novels that I think was first published in the 70s, and that is a book called An Enemy of the State. And that is a kind of sci-fi, future-in-space, libertarian revolution story. And um, in my opinion, it's a much better novel than probably the next best-known story like that, which is The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein. I actually prefer An Enemy of the State. If you wanted me to recommend a libertarian sci-fi in space type story. In fact, I enjoy this book so much, and I think it deserves so much bigger of a following amongst libertarians that I actually assigned it for last month's DHP book club Zoom call. So anyway, F. Paul Wilson, I would consider him a great horror and sci-fi author, even if he wasn't a libertarian and often, though not always, has those themes in his work. And again, as with Mike Resnick, who I don't think I mentioned before, Mike Resnick isn't a pure libertarian. He's, he's like a conservatarian, or he was a conservatarian. He was uh, probably somewhere around like a Goldwater Republican John Milius sort of a guy in his take. Like some of his views are more kind of right-wing conservative, but he definitely has a strong libertarian streak. Whereas Wilson, as far as I know, still identifies explicitly as a libertarian. But as with Resnick, in my opinion at least, Wilson's ideology definitely influences some of his fiction, but not in that awkward, didactic, ham-fisted, bludgeoning-you-over-the-face, preachy sort of a way that the Wokies are into right now. So anyway, that concludes my list of 12 writers every libertarian, including me, should read more. But don't tune out yet, because I've got a few other things to talk about, including a very important announcement at the end of this episode. So, the first thing I want to say is um, that if you noticed, if it sounded at all like my voice changed a little bit before halfway through the episode, that's because I recorded this episode in two segments, like a week and a half apart. So, I recorded the first segment of this episode before Christmas, not long after I had my fall where I injured my hand that I talked about uh, in the intro to this episode. And then I meant to wrap up the second part of this episode soon after Christmas, like most people, you know, during the few days leading up to and a few days after Christmas, I was busy with uh, family stuff and, you know, going over relatives' houses on Christmas Eve and stuff like that. And I intended to record the rest of this episode like within a day or two of Christmas. But I got hit with another problem around that time. And um, what happened was, actually starting on Christmas Eve, my younger child started to get pretty darn sick all of a sudden. Bad congestion, cough, fatigue, brain fog, all that sort of stuff. And over the course of the next few days, it got worse, not better. To the point where my wife brought her into the doctor, and basically she had had a cold that had then, you know, a really bad cold, that had then um, turned into an ear infection and bronchitis. Now, it was not flu or COVID. They tested for those things, and it was negative. So it was just a really nasty cold that then uh, caused my daughter some secondary infections. So she got put on antibiotics and an albuterol inhaler. That's how bad it was. She was coughing like crazy. 
And then unfortunately, within just a couple days of her showing symptoms, guess what? I got it. Now, my wife and other kid, neither of them ever seem to have gotten this thing. So who the hell knows? But by like the evening of the day after Christmas, I was feeling it. And over the next few days, it hit me pretty hard. And not bad enough that I went into the dock, not bad enough I needed antibiotics, I don't seem to have gotten any secondary infections from it, but whatever the hell it was, it was an above-average powerful cold that really did a number on my, um, you know, sinuses and voice, and I didn't get a horrible cough like my daughter did, but I had some some cough and, you know, multiple nights of just not being able to sleep because I was so uncomfortable, all that uh, wrecked my voice, and obviously that delayed me recording the second part of this episode. And I don't know if you can still hear it in my voice right now, but I certainly still feel it, even though I'm a lot better than I was. So yeah, I've had a rough last couple of weeks, you know, damn near broke my hand, uh, road rashed up one of my knees real bad, and then got pretty darn sick. And um, here we are, you know, I don't know, two weeks or so after my fall, and my hand is finally mostly better. And the nuclear cold is, you know, fading. But uh, yeah, that's the reason why I didn't get um, at least one more podcast episode out over the course of late December. So anyway, and I've been having a rough last couple of months, to be honest with you. And um, now I'm recording the last part of this, you know, after New Year's. And I just want to say thank you to everybody who's been a supporter of my work, especially in recent months. I really appreciate it. And I'm determined to make 2023 a better year for me than 2022 was or 2021 was for that matter. You know, knock on wood, now that my hand is healed up and uh, now that I'm getting over this last uh, illness, it was bad enough, by the way, I had to reschedule the DHP book club for December, which was originally going to be a few days after Christmas. I had to reschedule it for after New Year's because I just was too congested and voice gone and brain fogged and everything. I just couldn't function enough to do, you know, a credible job of doing a book club meeting. But I am determined to make 2023 a good year for me and a good year for the DHP. And my physical and mental health have taken a lot of beatings in recent weeks and months, but I'm trying to get back up and get back on the horse, so to speak. Now, throughout this episode, you've heard me reference the DHP Book Club multiple times, and I do just want to say that if I keep the DHP Book Club running long enough, I can guarantee we're going to cover at least one and possibly multiple books by authors on this list. So if you're interested in not just reading some of these authors, but having a discussion about these books with me and with some of the greatest DHP supporting listeners around, please consider signing up for the DHP Book Club. And the way you do that is, number one, you can send in a one-time donation through the Indiegogo campaign for $500 or more. And that'll buy you one year of DHP Book Club meetings in addition to a bunch of other benefits. And the second way that you can qualify to be part of the DHP Book Club is to sign up via either Patreon or Subscribestar for $50 a month or more. And if you do that, you get a whole host of perks and benefits in addition to uh, the book club itself. But, you know, if you think it would be cool to once a month have a Zoom book club discussion with me and some other really great people about 
some really awesome books, please consider signing up again, either one time through the Indiegogo or a monthly contribution through either Patreon or Subscribestar. Links to all these things in the show notes, of course. And again, our first three DHP book club books were by authors on this list. The first book we did was a book by Montesquieu. The second book we did was a book by F. Paul Wilson. And the third book we did, or that we're going to do, because I had to bump it from being sick, but the third book that we're covering is The Art of Not Being Governed by James C. Scott. So I hope you'll consider supporting my work at a level to get you access to the DHP book club. If that sounds interesting to you and uh, just in general, I can use all the help I can get right now. The last few months of 2022 were rough for me, both in terms of mental and physical health uh, and in terms of finances, to be brutally honest. So if you're in a place where you're willing and able to help support my work, I hope you'll consider doing so. And just in general, I hope that this episode has given you some interesting stuff to maybe go check out by writers whom you may not have heard of before, or maybe you kind of vaguely heard the name somewhere, but didn't really know much about who they were and what they wrote about. And you know, if nothing else, if someone gave you an Amazon gift card over the holidays and you want to go old school and actually buy gasp books through Amazon. Remember when that was all Amazon had? But um, if you want to spend your Amazon gift cards that you got for Christmas on actual books, I hope I've given you some stuff to consider. And then the last thing I want to mention is that in the very near future, I'm going to be teaching an online course for Renegade University. And um, Renegade University, if you don't know, is a platform where people teach classes on a variety of things outside of the normal kind of college accreditation cartel system. And so there have been courses taught by people whom listeners to this show will definitely recognize. You know, there have been courses in RU taught by James Corbett. There was a course taught by Jack the Perfume Nationalist, recent guest on this show, and a whole bunch of other unorthodox intellectuals, and not just on academic type subjects, but there have been courses taught at RU on things like printing 3D guns, and um, I think on agorism and things like that. Now, it's true that Renegade University was started by Thaddeus Russell, and I know he's a controversial figure amongst some crowds, but um, he's no longer affiliated with them, so if you're somebody who has any issues with him, like, don't worry if you sign up for Renegade University now. Um, he's, he's not a part of it, you know. Some, some people love him, some people don't. I know he's a polarizing figure. But anyway, I'm going to be teaching a course for Renegade University, a three-part course on the decline and fall of empires. And I will be sure to put a link to the page about this at RU for you to check out, but I'm very excited to be doing this. It is going to be on the evenings of Wednesday, January 11th, Wednesday, January 18th, and Wednesday, January 25th. And if you would like to sign up for this course with me, you can use the coupon code DANGEROUS. That's just the word DANGEROUS, and you'll get a significant discount. Like, you'll literally get 50% off uh, the cost of the course. And by the way, if you can't make it during real time, one or all of those Wednesday evenings, it's going to be at 8 p.m. Eastern time. You can still take the course and just watch the video recordings of it because it is going to be recorded and archived 
by RU. And even if you're listening to this podcast episode, you know, way after January of 2023, you can still take the course, you know, just obviously not in real time, but you can still sign up and uh, watch the recordings of all the sessions. I don't know for how long the coupon code Dangerous is going to be active, but for sure the course will be available for anybody listening to this to take. So if you would like to take a three-part online seminar with me on the decline and fall of empires, a comparative history. So in other words, we're not just looking at the decline and fall of one particular empire. We're doing a compare and contrast of different empires throughout history and how they've fallen and looking for similarities and patterns and stuff like that. Please consider signing up to take the course with me, whether in real time or after the fact with the recordings. And I will just say, I do get compensation from RU based on how many students take the course, including students who take the course, you know, is the recordings after the fact. So not only will you get the chance to take what is hopefully a very interesting and informative course for you, um, but you are also, you know, kicking a few shekels into my pocket um, while doing it. So anyway, I hope you'll consider signing up to support the show if you're not already. I hope you'll consider signing up or contributing at the level to be part of the DHP book club. And I hope you'll consider taking my course on the decline and fall of empires through Renegade University. So happy new year to all of you. And I'm gearing up and starting the fight to make 2023 the best year so far for me, and for the Dangerous History Podcast. And I'm wishing you and yours sincerely the best year possible, too. Thank you for listening.